Well, we have really entered into a, a pretty unique time here the last couple weeks uh, between, kind of, in, kind of in this in-between stage, this, this overlapping stage where, where there, there was life in the peak of the pandemic, life in the, in the shutdown, life in quarantine, where we can't go anywhere, we've got to stay at home, be, with, be at home, and, and can't gather together. And, and now we are, we're kind of seeking, but we're not there yet, to come back into, to get back to what, what we hope life will be like again. We're in this, this weird overlapping stage, aren't we? We're, we're free to gather with each other this morning, but we are not allowed to get closer than six feet to one another. I can see you, but I cannot shake your hand or give you a hug. Many of us are allowed to work then, following numerous protocols. Now we're living in this kind of in-between. We're striving for normalcy, even as we navigate the continuing reality of this virus. And, and you know, this, this, this in-between, this overlap, this, this, this thing about this morning, this is really a picture, a great picture of, of the reality that we always live in as followers of Christ. We live as believers in an even greater and truer overlap of the ages. We live in the already and the not yet. When I think about it, we are already adopted into God's family, but we're not yet experiencing the fullness of that adoption in our heavenly home with the Father, glorified bodies and a glorified... We're still waiting for that day. We're already forgiven of our sins, freed from their power over us, but we're not yet free from since presence or influence in our lives. We are already united as one people in Jesus, but we're not yet free from the possibility of division and disunity in our daily lives. In Christ, He has saved you by His grace. He has forgiven you. He's adopted you. He's redeemed you. He's united you. This is who you are. This is what's already been done. But, but now as we open up to Ephesians 4 and the next three chapters of Ephesians, we're going to start to reckon with the reality of the not yet. Just like we're currently striving for normalcy while we navigate the reality of this pandemic, so, so the call of these chapters to believers is to strive to live according to what's already true of us, even as we navigate the continuing realities of sin in this world and the devil. We're striving to be who God has said we are, who we know one day we will be, even while we face this opposition and this reality in this overlap of the ages. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Our passage this morning is Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, but we're going to read all the way through verse 6. It's really one unit, and we're just going to take it in two weeks to help us understand just the emphasis of what Paul is saying. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 6 this morning as we begin the second half of this letter. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And in all. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 
closely this morning, and then four through six next week. But as we look at these first three verses, the, the first thing that we need to see here is, is that there's this overarching exhortation that comes first. So, so our passage begins with, with basically a theme verse for the next three chapters, and this overarching instruction that Paul gives. And, and this covers uh, everything that we're going to see in chapters four, five, and six. And, and, and again, here's what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is the overarching instruction for these three chapters. Just, just, just look at a few things that he says here. First, just, just notice, therefore. Therefore. Okay. The word therefore in the New Testament is, is maybe the most important word for understanding the Christian life. Now, you might think that's, that's crazy talk. It's just the word therefore. But, but really, think about it. What, what does the word therefore communicate? When you think about how Paul uses this word here in other letters, what, we, we realize that, that therefore unlocks for us what the Christian life really is about. The, 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 the day-to-day Christian life, what is it? It, it, is, it is a therefore. It's, it's, it's a response to what God has done. Chapters 1 through 3 have held out to us. For, for months now, we've been looking at the saving realities of the gospel, the, all, all the blessings we have in Christ, all that God has done for us in His Son and by His Spirit, the grace by which we've been saved, the glory that we've been brought into, the salvation that we've experienced completely only because of God. Therefore, therefore, walk this way. Therefore, live this life. So, so, so this frames for us what the Christian life is. It's not, it's not putting forth our effort to please God. It's not trying to earn something, but it's, it's responding to all that God has done in Christ out of a heart of love and thankfulness and worship to Him. We, we cannot overestimate the, the, the therefore here. We cannot say too much about it. We could preach a whole sermon on therefore because this is the key to the Christian life, is understanding my life is not earning anything before God. My life is responding to what God has done for me. It's responding to His grace, responding to His salvation, uh, uh, just, just giving gratitude and love and worship to the God of my salvation who has saved me by His grace. So as we go through these next few chapters, we cannot forget, therefore, we cannot forget chapters 1, 2, and 3. We cannot forget the saving realities of the gospel. Over and over, we've been called to remember, remember, remember. It's what we've been doing all year. Now, let's not forget what God has done. Let's not forget that we were dead. Let's not forget that we were separated. Let's not forget what God has done for us. And that way, we can, we can hear these instructions week after week, knowing this is our response to what God has done. So, therefore, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. And I just want to note here what Paul brings in again, that he, he reminds us and he, he gives this instruction as a prisoner for the Lord. You know, Paul was an apostle. Paul had authority. Paul could say, I command you as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he says, no, I urge you as a prisoner for the Lord. There, there's the weight of authority there's the weight of blanket authority. I have authority. Here's what you're to do. But then there's an even greater weight of someone who is living it out themselves, someone who's experiencing it, someone who is even suffering for the things that he is calling us to. 
That's the authority Paul brings, not just the authority of, of his apostleship, but the authority of his experience as someone who is imprisoned for Christ, suffering for the gospel. He writes to someone who is suffering and saying, join me. I urge you to do this. I urge you to live this way. And then he says, what is the exhortation? To, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You know, I think the last few months we've all experienced a little bit more what it, what it means to go on a walk. Right? Anyone go on a walk the last few months with your family around your neighborhood? Yeah, a lot of us have done that because we don't just want to be inside all day. And so, so we've been walking. But, but in, in the, the New Testament era, in, in, in ancient times, everyone walked everywhere. And so when he uses this word walk, he's, he's saying live your day in and day out life this way. As you get up and as you go and as you, as you do your chores, as you do your job, as you're with your family, as you're in your community, how should you live? How should you walk? This, this is just as practical as you can get, day in and day out, what kind of life should you lead? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner that is consistent with the calling that you've been called. Walk in a manner that matches the calling to which you've been called. And what is that calling? What is the calling to which God has called us, church? Think about Ephesians 1-3. We know that God has called us. We know that in Christ, by His Spirit, through the Gospel, He has called us. What has He called us to? He has called us to Himself. He has called us to holiness. He has called us into His family. He has called us to be his new creation. He has called us to be his new people. These are all aspects of the call, but to put it all together, what is the calling to which we've been called? Try to put all of that together as simply as possible. Our calling is to be God's people. This is the calling to which we've been called, to be God's people. Both those words are so important because on the one hand, we are God's. We, we belong to Him. We should reflect Him. We are His. He is our Father. We are His children. He is holy. We're called to be holy. He is righteous. We're called to be righteous. He's loving. We're called to be loving. We, we are God's. But it's not just that you're God's and you're God's and yours. No, we, we are God's people. We are called as a people to be a people. He has called us into one new body, one new humanity, one new family, one new citizenship. We are God's people. This is our calling. And Paul says here to, to live your daily life, day in and day out, in a way that is consistent with your calling to be God's people, where your life looks like that person is a part of the people of God. Day in and day out, that's the kind of life that we are called to live in response to the glorious saving realities of the gospel. So this is the overarching exhortation. This is what we will be exploring for the next few months. Every week as we come and hearing God's word from Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, what does it mean to walk as God's people? What does it mean to live our daily lives as the people of God because of the gospel of God? So this is the overarching exhortation he gives. Now he, he, he jumps from there into the, the immediate instruction. The very, the very first instruction he gives underneath that overarching exhortation. And let's, let's read the passage again. The instruction really comes at the very end of 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
So the very first thing he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Very first way you can do this, walk in unity. Walk in unity. If, if you're going to walk as God's people, then you need to walk as a people. You need to walk in unity. He says, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want to notice a few things here. He does not say create the unity. He says maintain the unity. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. So that teaches us something, doesn't it? It tells us that this unity already exists. We already are united by the Holy Spirit. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Him as your Savior for salvation, then, then you have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit now unites all of us together in one body. This, this is the actual reality. We are, we are as united as family members are united by their family name. Me and my sister are united because we were born into the same family, and we are both Mosers. We are united. And we, family, we, church family, are united by the Holy Spirit. How does the Spirit bring about this unity? He does it through the bond of peace. The, the, the bond of peace is a way of describing what, what is it that binds us together? What does the Spirit do to bind us together? And, and He brings us His peace. And this, referring back to chapter 2, into the peace of Christ that Christ has won for us. We were strangers, we were excluded, but chapter 2, verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. We saw in chapter 2 that Jesus not only reconciles each of us to God, but He reconciles us to one another through his death on the cross. He, he tears down the hostility. We are one new man in Christ. He is our peace. Verse 18, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the spirit has united us together. This is the reality. We are united by the peace of Christ. And then Paul says, here's the instruction, maintain that unity. Maintain that unity. When I hear the word maintain, first thing I hear is fix it. And you guys know me, I'm not really a fixer. I'm not good at fixing things. Um, I, I, I call other people to help me fix things. And so, you know, let's think about plumbing, all right? If, we, if, if our plumbing uh, go, goes bad, then to maintain that means I'm going to call someone who knows how to fix my plumbing, and, and I'm, I'm not going to worry about it again until it breaks again. So to maintain my plumbing is to wait till it breaks and then call someone to fix it. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not saying, if your unity breaks down, then try to fix it. If, if we wait till unity has begun to deteriorate, then, then fixing it becomes so much harder. If we wait till that unity begins to crumble. Now, now I want to clarify, no one, can, no one can interrupt the reality of our unity. If we are in Christ, we are united, and one day we will be perfectly united in heaven. But, but in this life, experientially, relationally, we can be divided but if we wait till that division begins, the chances of restoring it are, are so much less. We don't, just, we don't just passively not care about unity until it breaks. No, that's not what he means by maintain. It's more, it's more like how you maintain a garden. And you don't wait for it to get overgrown with weeds. You don't wait 
for it to get to the point where, where it's, 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 it's just this huge thing that needs to be taken care of. No, to maintain a garden means you keep it, you cultivate it, you, you attend to it carefully, daily, uh, uh, regularly looking after it, watering it, making sure that everything is, is, is taken care of. This is what it means to maintain unity, is to keep it like a garden, to cultivate it, to watch over it. It's, it's, this, it's this active, loving, intentional action that we take. And this is what Paul's calling us to. He's calling Redeemer Church this morning, cultivate the unity of the Holy Spirit. Keep the unity of the Spirit. Watch over the unity of the Spirit in your midst. Don't just wait till you see disunity. No, no. Don't just wait till you see disunity, but, but, but actively build it up. Actively cultivate it. How do we do that, church? How do we actively cultivate unity? And this is where we can look at what he says in in verse 2. These are the ways that we cultivate this unity. First, he says, with all humility. We cultivate and maintain and keep our unity through humility. Now, what is humility? The world thinks humility is just thinking less of yourself, being down on yourself. That's not biblical humility, though. We know this because Jesus was the most humble person who ever walked this earth, and Jesus did not think less of himself. Jesus said he's God. Jesus had the accurate highest estimation of himself, and yet he is the most humble. So it's not thinking less of yourself. What is it? What is it then? Well, Philippians 2 tells us Jesus' humility is not in thinking less of himself. Jesus' humility is in knowing exactly who he was, Yet not regarding that a thing to be grasped, but but taking the form of a servant, making himself nothing, dying on the cross for us. This is the humility of Christ. It's not that he thought less of himself. No, it's that he thought of others. It's that he considered others. It's that he served others. Humility is an others-orientedness. And our natural tendency is a self-orientedness. Our natural tendency is to think about ourselves first. But Christ's humility is that he thought of us, and he served us. And this is why Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, consider not only your own interests, but also the interests of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. He's, he's, He's saying, think about one another and think about how to serve one another. Think about how to move toward one another. And you know, in that passage, that whole passage begins in Philippians 2. It's such an important text to help us here because it, it shows us at the very beginning, he says, have one mind, be of one heart, of one accord. How are you, you going to do that? Serve each other. Consider each other. Look out for each other. Consider the interests of one another. This is the kind of humility that cultivates unity. Listen, if I come into this body of people with a selfish mindset, with a self-oriented mindset, then if something's not going my way, or if something's not what I want, then, then I'm going to allow disunity to grow there. But if I'm coming with mentality that this is not about me, this is about others, I'm coming to serve others, to love others, to look out for their interests, then unity will follow. And so the first way we cultivate this unity is coming to this gathering and living with this body in an others-oriented way. And church, the, the, maybe the best way, the easiest way to apply this to your life is just make it a pattern to ask someone, how can I pray for you? If you do that, 
And if we are honest in our answers, then our answers, what are they going to reveal? Our answers reveal our interests. Our answers reveal our circumstances. Our answers reveal the places we need help. And so by asking someone, how can I pray for you, it opens up the door to having this other-oriented mentality with them. Then, then, then what you can do is you can actually pray for them. And then you can follow up with them and say, how's that going? And you can find ways to serve them, find ways to help them. That simple question opens up huge possibilities for serving each other in humility. So I just want to encourage you, ask each other, how can I pray for you? And, and begin to cultivate this humility as we keep our unity here. Second, gentleness. Humility and gentleness. When we think about gentleness, we, we, we may just think of, of, you know, again, culturally speaking, just, just, just someone that is, that is uh, not, not strong, right? Someone who is weak, but that's not, that's not gentleness. Again, we know this because Jesus, Jesus declared about himself, I am gentle in heart. I brought this book today just because it's been so important and helpful. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I want to encourage you to get this book and to read this book by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly. And in this book, he, he makes the point that, that Jesus, the one time he said, this is who I am, this, this is my very heart, the one time he led us into that, that very deepest level, this, this is me, it says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is gentle. And what does that mean? It means that, that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Sinners were not afraid to come to Christ like they were afraid to come to a Pharisee. Sin, sinners flocked to Christ because they knew, they knew, though he would not approve their sin, they knew he, would, he was approachable. He was tender. He was loving. He would accept them. He would, he would make them feel safe to, to, to come with all their sin, with all their flaws. And to know that he was not going to turn them away, he was not going to reject them, he was going to tenderly, lovingly accept them. This is the kind of gentleness that he calls us to. To be people who are not harsh, not judgmental, not, not, not shocked at someone's sin, but actually someone who, who you, you, you think about this person in your life and you say, I know I can go to them and talk about my sin. I know they'll receive me. I know they'll love me. I know they'll be tender with me. That's the kind of person you want to go to. And he says, be gentle. And that cultivates unity, doesn't it? Sin, I can go to my brother, I can go to my sister, and I can confess, and they, and they will deal lovingly and tenderly with me. Gently, just as Jesus is gentle. That's going to cultivate unity. So humility and gentleness and then patience. Patience. What is patience? What does it mean to be patient? I think, I think one of those words maybe is hard to even define, but, but you think about someone who's patient, that they understand someone else's weakness. They are not surprised at someone else's need to grow. And they bear with that person because of that ability to sympathize with where they are. This is a patient person. It's, it's an understanding person. It's a person who, who bears with, a person who, who forgives continually. 
And of course, again, Jesus was perfectly patient. Think about Jesus and his disciples and how often they said the most unbelieving and ridiculous things. And he, just, he, ne- he never discounted them. He never said, that's enough. I'm through with you. He, he understood and sympathized with their weakness. He was patient with them. And he continued to love them, continued to teach them, continued to instruct them, continued to help them grow, continued to forgive them. This is the kind of patience we need. We need, we need the patience to understand that my brother or my sister needs to grow and they're weak, and they need me to be a part of that. And so I'm not, I'm not going to I'm not going to be exasperated by their immaturity. I'm not going to be exasperated by their sin. I'm not going to be exasperated by their behavior, but I'm going to patiently forgive and keep on bearing with them as they grow. We all started as infants spiritually, and we're all growing continually. So we need to be patient with each other, and this will cultivate our unity. And then he says, uh, uh, for bearing with one another in love. And so underneath this patience, what's underneath the patience is love. It's this commitment to someone's greatest good. It's this, it's this sacrificial stance that I, I'm going to pursue your good no matter what it costs me. And again, this, this is needed to maintain and cultivate unity this is the stuff that makes a marriage last, is, is not that everything's going well, but, but the commitment of a spouse that no matter what, I'm not leaving. And no matter what is going on in our marriage, I am going to continue to pursue your highest good. No matter what it costs me, no matter how much it hurts. I'm going to love you to the point where it is painful in my life. And this, again, we see this in Christ. He he didn't just love us, but he loved us to the end. He loved us and laid down his life for us. This is the commitment we make to each other. It's a proactive love that seeks, pursues each other's highest good. And so we see these things, humility, gentleness, patience, love. And this morning God's calling you. Walk worthy of the calling to be God's people. Walk in unity as God's people. Cultivate that unity by humility, gentleness, patience, love. But, but there's one more we need to see that, that if we don't have this, we, we really lose the rest. And that is, being in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager. Eagerness. We must have an eagerness to cultivate unity, church. We, we will not do it. We will not give ourselves to this if we don't eagerly desire this. I've seen many times believers not pursue unity because the desire to pursue unity was not there anymore. They did not want it anymore. It would be easier to go find unity somewhere else where does this eagerness come from, church? Where, where, where will the, the, the inward desire to want to work for unity, no matter how hard it might be, where does that come from? I think it comes back to, therefore, and it comes back to remembering all that God has done, remembering all that God has remembering the calling he's given to us, remembering the glory of this calling do you realize that when, when a church is unified, Jesus promised us in John 17, the world 
will know that you sent me. So, 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 so why am I eager to cultivate unity? Why, why should we be eager to cultivate unity? Because when we're unified, Christ is exalted. When we're unified, his love is, is made known. When we're unified, the fact that God sent him into this world is put on display. But when we're disunified, none of that's happening. When disunity enters in, then no one sees that God sent his son into the world. And so the, the, the eagerness to pursue unity, to cultivate unity, to work for unity, even when you're being sinned against, even when you're being hurt, even when you're being ignored, disregarded by your fellow brothers and sisters, that eagerness to keep going, to stay committed, to keep working, to keep serving, it comes from recognizing that God has saved me in Christ and this is an opportunity to display to the world the glory of this God in our unity. And so, last week we saw, now to him be glory. If that's where your heart is today, to him be glory, then your response is, I'm going to pursue unity with my church family. If I want to glorify God, then I'm going to cultivate unity. I'm going to serve my brothers and sisters in humility. I'm going to gently deal with my brother when they confess sin to me. I'm going to be patient with those who sin against me. I'm going to pursue their highest good in love. And I'm going to eagerly do this. I'm going to make every effort. That word eager could be translated, make every effort to cultivate unity. Go completely at it. Go, go hard at unity. For the glory of God, as he fulfills his plan through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This, this is his plan for our unity. This is the calling to which we've been called, and we pursue it eagerly because of what he's done for us, church. We're about to celebrate communion. As we do, let's remember the root of our unity. Let's remember the source of our unity and let it drive us to this point of eagerness as we begin to, to, to walk together again, gathering weekly together in this place to pursue this unity that will glorify his son. Let's pray and then we will celebrate communion together.